Baptist University College now and former pastor of just a little church, as Jacob says, Riverview Church. You might know it, in the city. Uh, and we invite you up to come share the word this morning. Thank you, Pastor Tim. Well, good morning, Everyday Church. How are we going today? Yeah, I hope you all. It's wonderful to be with you. And I uh, want to say a big warm welcome to everyone in the room and, of course, everyone joining us online as well. Good to be together again. Thank you for the invitation to come and spend some time with you and hang out in your part of the world. And I am honestly just deeply encouraged by what I've seen as far as the progress is concerned on your move towards um, securing your own building. Um, I think sometimes when you're immersed in an environment like this, you, you can take it for granted, right? You don't, you don't necessarily see and feel the progress that is taking place because you're, you're living it, you're immersed in it, right? But when somebody comes in from the outside and, and they, they see something that is clearly developing and morphing and evolving and shaping, the progress is clearly evident. So I'm here today to tell you your progress is abundantly evident, like God is doing something significant amongst you, and uh, I hope you can cherish it and value it and appreciate it, because it's a good thing. God is doing good things, and He's going to do good things in your future, and so I want to encourage you to be hopeful and expectant for all that He's going to continue to do, and I agree. Um, you know, God is our provider, and He's faithful, and what He has done in the past should give us confidence for what He's going to do in the future, and so you can look forward to him doing wonderful things. So I hope that 2023 is going to be memorable for all the right reasons. And uh, I'm believing with you for God to do great things. So um, today I want to share some thoughts with you um, from the book of Acts. And uh, I want to start at chapter 1, verse 1, and um, go all the way through to chapter 28, verse 31. So we're going to talk about the whole book, right? Now, I'm not going to read all of that, of course, and uh, just... Relax, I assure you the sermon is going to be no longer than 30 minutes. Um, they say the secret to a good sermon is to have a good introduction, a good ending, and keep the two as close together as possible. So I'm going <laughs> to endeavor to do that today. But there are some, some profoundly important uh, ideas embedded in the lives and the stories of the first century followers of Jesus that I believe have very significant implications for you and I as 21st century followers of Jesus. And I want to explore some of those today. And a number of years ago, a really well-known uh, theologian, Christian thinker, and author by the name of N.T. Wright came up with a concept that he referred to as the Fifth Act Church. I don't know if you've come across the idea or heard of it before, but essentially what N.T. Wright said was this. He said, imagine for a moment that we discovered a brand new Shakespearean play. And this was a Shakespearean play that no one had ever seen before or heard of before, and Shakespearean authorities were able to validate and authenticate this was, in fact, a work of Shakespeare. Only what was unique about this new work was that it only consisted of four acts, unlike all Shakespeare's other works that are five-act plays. He said, we'd be faced with a bit of a dilemma. We'd have a decision to make because given there is no final fifth act, we don't really know how the story ends. So we might conclude, all right, well, we can't perform this. We can never put it into production. We just got to put it on the shelf and kind of wonder what Shakespeare had in mind as far as the end of the story goes. Or he said, we could gather together a group of Shakespearean experts and we could give them the first four acts and they could write a fifth act. They could like improvise based on what they know of the story 
in the first four acts. So they could study the characters and the kind of trajectory and the arc of the story and the themes, and they could get some sense of where the story is going. And then they could write a fifth act, and we could play out this, this new Shakespearean play. And he said, in a lot of ways, what you and I as 21st century followers of Jesus are doing is we are, in a very real sense, living out the fifth act of God's redemptive story, the mission of God at work in the world today. And what we have at our disposal is really the first four acts. And those four, first four acts are found in the Scriptures, and they provide us with some really important information about the arc of the story and the trajectory of the story and the themes and the characters and what it is that God has done to date. Things like the creation and the fall of humankind, you know, humanity's rebellion, the birth of Israel and the coming of the Messiah and His death, burial, and resurrection. And really those provide us with the first four acts of the story. But the story's not over. It's not finished. And you and I are living out in real time the fifth act. So in a lot of ways, what the Scripture does is it functions like the scrolling yellow text at the start of every Star Wars movie. Right? Any Star Wars fans here, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, At the beginning of every Star Wars movie, there's a scrolling yellow text that orientates you to what you are about to see and experience. That scrolling yellow text tells you what's happened so far, what characters are on the scene, what is about to take place before it launches you into the story. And in a sense, that was, that's what the Bible does. The Bible tells us what God has been doing for the last few thousand years and where He's been doing it and who He's been doing it through and what the arc of the story is and where it is that you and I are stepping into the story. But make no mistake about it, we are in the story. You and I are living out the story. We are living it out in real time. And so we get to play out this kind of fifth act. But we have to improvise as we go because there's no script, right? And there are so many things about life in the 21st century that the Bible has nothing to say about. There are so many aspects of life that Scripture doesn't speak directly to. So we've got to kind of have to improvise our way through this, but we have to do it in a way that's faithful, faithful to the story, faithful to the first four acts, faithful to the, the arc and the trajectory of where God is taking the story. And so this is why the book of Acts becomes incredibly valuable to us, because what we have in the book of Acts is the first role players, if you like, stepping onto the stage of this fifth act, the first followers of Jesus, endeavoring to live out the story of God's redemptive mission in the world and to improvise their way through it as they go. And so in that sense, Acts provides us with something of the history of the church, right? It gives us not an exhaustive history, but an adequate history. It doesn't tell us everything we would possibly know about the first century church, but it tells us enough of what we need to know. And it kind of functions like a highlight reel, touching in on some of the most defining moments and the most significant events and the, the most um, spectacular and supernatural and sovereign interventions of God. And so we have something of a history in the book of Acts. Now, what is significant about the book of Acts is that it is not only our history, it is also our heritage. And there is a difference, right? Imagine for a moment that I, I bought you a book about the history of the royal family. If you're a royalist, you might consider that to be a wonderful gift, and you might read it enthusiastically and enjoy what you are reading, right? If you're not a royalist, you might kind of flick through it casually and then throw it away or sell it on eBay, right? But, but that book would be a record of the history of the royal family. Now, if you went online to Ancestry.com and you did a little deep dive into your heritage and into your family tree, and you discovered 
that you are actually connected to the royal family, that you have, uh, you know, those who have gone before you who are tied genetically to the royal family, that you actually have royal blood in your veins. All of a sudden, that history of the royal family becomes your heritage. It becomes your birthright. It becomes your DNA. And so what we have in the book of Acts is not just the history of the church, it's the heritage of the church. In other words, it ought to inform our present and it ought to inspire our future. Because what the book of Acts provides us with is not only our history, but our DNA, our heritage. And that should shape our expectation. And here's the thing about expectation. The reason why God cares so deeply about our expectations is because our expectation serves as the doorway and the pathway to our experience. Right? You will, you will largely experience God to the degree that you expect things from God. Your expectation of God will shape your experience of God because your expectation of God is inextricably linked to your receptivity. So the reason why God is wanting to raise the level of our expectations is because in raising the level of our expectations, God raises the level of our receptivity. And in raising our receptivity, God opens us to the possibility of Him then stepping into our lives and doing sovereign, supernatural, wonderful things in order to achieve His purpose. And so the book of Acts serves to shape and mold our expectations as the 21st century believers because it is our birthright, it is our heritage, it is our DNA. Now, I must just add this disclaimer, I guess, to say this, that the book of Acts is what we call historical narrative, right? That's the genre. And as historical narrative, the book of Acts is for the most part descriptive, not prescriptive. Meaning that it is there to describe what happened. It's not necessarily there to prescribe what should happen. So, for example, uh, Peter one day in the book of Acts, he's, he's out walking on his way to the temple. And the Bible says a whole bunch of like sick and lame and, and diseased people lying at the side of the road. And as he walks, his shadow falls on them and they're healed. Wow. All right. That's a pretty surprising and stunning intervention of God into a less than ideal situation. But Peter does not start a school of shadow healing, right? He doesn't write a book on how to heal with your shadow and then go on a book tour and try and teach everybody else how to heal with their shadow. In other words, what happened there was wonderful. It was sovereign. It was supernatural. It's inspiring. It's moving. But we should not assume that every time somebody is sick, we can just get an apostle to walk by and cast his shadow on them and they'll be healed, right? But what we should expect is that God will show up in sovereign, supernatural, surprising, and wonderful ways, and He will reveal His power, and He will show Himself strong, only we don't get to prescribe to Him when He does it, or how He does it, or through whom He does it, right? But we should absolutely expect it. We should expect it because it's part of our DNA. It's part of our birthright. It's in our history. It's part of our heritage, right? So we don't dictate to God what He should do, and when He should do it, and how He should do it. But we live with expectation that at any moment in time, God can step into our situation and He can do something surprising and stunning and wonderful and unexpected, right? Because that is the God we serve, right? So with those kind of foundational thoughts in mind, I want to share three things with you today that I believe God would want to shape our expectation 
as far as life in the church is concerned, for us as 21st century followers of Jesus. When it comes to being the church, when it comes to living out the redemptive story of God in our world, when it comes to fulfilling the mission and the mandate that He has placed upon our shoulders, what should we expect? What can we legitimately expect, right? And there are three things I want to share with you. And when I look at the book of Acts, these are the three things that I see prominently coming through in the story that should shape our expectation. No doubt there's probably more, and you can probably add to the list if you want to add a few, but these are the three that are most evident to me. All right, number one, if you're taking notes, write them down. This is the first thing. When I look at the book of Acts and the lives and stories of first century believers, I see real people, real people. Now, I mean that first and foremost, quite literally, that these are actual people, right? These are not actors on a play. These are not characters in a story. There was actually a man named Paul and someone called Luke and a lady called Dorcas and two people called Priscilla and Aquila. And we have no reason whatsoever to doubt their historicity. If you know anything about New Testament scripture, you know it stands head and shoulders above its peers when it comes to credibility, um, validity, uh, as far as documents of antiquity are concerned. So there's no reason at all to doubt the historicity of these people. They are actual, literal, real people. But when I say real people, I mean authentic people. I mean genuine people. I mean down-to-earth people, ordinary, everyday people just like you and just like me. And the reason why it's so important for us to see that is because when you read the book of Acts, it reads like, like a Bruce Willis action movie, right? It's like fast. It's, it's high intensity. It's action-packed drama from start to finish. And there's a miracle here and a supernatural intervention there and a surprising phenomenon over here. And when you read it, it, it kind of feels like it's all playing out over like three years. But in reality, the book plays out over three decades. And in between all those highlights and all those supernatural miracles and all those sovereign interventions of God, there's a whole lot of ordinary going on. There's a whole lot of everyday, normal life happening. Goats that need to be fed. Cows that need to be milked. Corn that needs to be harvested. Kids that need to be bathed. Dinners that need to be made, right? And it's important for us to see that because sometimes history dilutes the normalcy of these people's lives. You read the book of Acts and you think, my goodness, what's wrong with us? Why don't we see a miracle every second day? Why, why don't we see God showing up in sovereign supernatural power like every five minutes? Because that's what it feels like when you read the book of Acts. That in between all of those highlights and defining moments and significant events, there's a whole lot of everyday normal going on, right? And it's so important that we see that. And, and, and what, I, what I like to kind of think of the church in the book of Acts as is the church without any makeup on. That's what we have, right, in the book of Acts, the church without any makeup on. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen those comparative photos that they sometimes put up online. I think they're quite unkind, and, and, they're, and they're not particularly generous. That's why I'm not going to show you any. But they're comparative photos where they'll take, say, a celebrity or a supermodel or some, somebody who we know well, and they'll put this comparative photo up with her, with her makeup on and without her makeup on. And sometimes the difference is so stark, you look at it and you think, is that the same person? Like, my gosh, right? Because when she doesn't have her makeup on, all the wrinkles, blemishes, pimples, spots, it creases, right? And then, of course, with her makeup on, you, we all know makeup can do wonders, right? It can absolutely transform the human face. And so what we have in the book of Acts, in, in reality, is the church without any makeup on. 
The church in all its, its raw, broken, human fallibility. I mean, you read the book of Acts, and there is pride, there's prejudice, there's partiality, there's conflict, there's relational breakdown, there's deceit. And that's just like the first 10 chapters, <laughs> all right? It's like the church in all its beauty, but the church in all its brokenness as well. Why? Because we are dealing with real people, real people. And it's so important to see that because that should inform and shape our expectation, right? Right? We all love the ideal church, that perfect, spotless, blameless bride of Christ for whom Jesus is coming back one day. We all love that church. The question is, can you love the real church? The church with all its shortcomings and all its failings and all its inadequacies and all its deficiencies and all its inconsistencies. Can you love that church? Because that's the church Jesus loves too, right? Real people, real people in all their brokenness and all their flaws. And here's the thing about real people. Real people doubt what they believe. Real people struggle with fear. Real people have addictions. Real people don't have their lives all together. Real people are afraid. They're anxious. Real people make mistakes. Real people say things they wish they hadn't, <laughs> and they do things that they deeply regret. Real people will let you down. They'll disappoint you. Real people are inconsistent. And so when it comes to Life together as a faith community, it is so important that we understand we are real people and we have to give ourselves and give others the permission to be real people because if we don't, you know what's going to happen? We're going to come into this experience called church with unrealistic expectations. And unrealistic expectations inevitably become unrealized expectations and unrealized expectations are the source of our disappointment and our discouragement. Why do people end up giving up on faith, throwing in the towel, walking away from church? Very often, it's just simply unrealistic expectations. That became unrealized expectations, and therein lies their disappointment. And so when it comes to life together as a faith community, we have to expect real people. And you've got to ask yourself the question, okay, in the context of life together at Everyday Church, do we have the freedom to be real? Can we be real about what we are afraid of, what we're thinking, about the doubts, about the questions, about the uncertainties, about the struggles? And I think sometimes in the context of local church life, the reason why we don't necessarily feel the freedom to be real about what it is we're thinking and feeling and going through and wrestling with is because we think if we acknowledge that reality, that we're somehow denying the reality of our faith in Jesus or our devotion to Jesus. And so we don't want to admit to an addiction over here because we don't want to in any way discredit our faith over here. And, and I'm saying to you that there is, there is nothing about this reality, your fallenness, your inconsistency, your brokenness, your humanity, there's nothing about your humanity that discredits the sincerity and the genuineness and the authenticity of your faith in Jesus and your devotion to Jesus. Listen, you can be a passionate, committed, faithful follower of Jesus and still battle with doubt. You can be sincere in your devotion and absolutely pure in your heart and your desire to honor God and still be struggling with an addiction. That is the reality of human experience. And the only way we can ever really truly experience the grace of God and the goodness of God and the healing of God is when we give ourselves and give each other the permission to be real people. Real people, right? And so when I see the book of Acts, I see real people. 
And that's why I love, you. I love the name of your church so much. Because I think there's something of this embedded in the intention behind the name of your church. Everyday church. This is not celebrity church. This is not perfect church. This is not awesome, spectacular church. This is everyday church full of everyday people. Ordinary, normal human beings who serve an extraordinary, abnormal God, right? So we see real people. And the second thing I see when I, when I open up the book of Acts and I see the lives and the stories of these first century believers is I see real power. I see real power. You know, Jesus did say to his disciples just prior to his ascension, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And of course, we see in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit being poured out on these ordinary, everyday people in a really powerful and wonderful way. And consequently, we see them living out this faith and devotion to Jesus in normal, ordinary, everyday kind of ways, but carried along by this extraordinary abnormal kind of power, the power of the Holy Spirit. And I know that down through the years, you know, some people have said, well, you know what, now that the church is established and we have the Bible, we have the scriptures, we don't need the power of the Holy Spirit anymore. We can kind of, we can get by without it. I personally don't subscribe to that way of thinking because my assumption is if the first century followers of Jesus needed the power of God to fulfill the mission of God, who are we to assume that we can do it without the power of God? If they needed the sovereign, supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to achieve what it was that God was commissioning them to do, surely we do too. And so I believe that God would have us live in expectation of His power being at work in and through our lives. And the reason is simply because there is a correlation between power and effectiveness. How many of you know there's a big difference between being active, being productive, and being effective? They are not the same things, right? You, you can be active and not be productive. Anybody had a day like that? You know, where you just feel like you get to the end of the day and you've been so busy and you think, what the heck have I achieved? Like, what have I done? Nothing, right? You've been busy, but you haven't really produced anything. So you can be active, but not productive. How many of you know you can be active and productive, but not be effective? You can be busy producing results, but if they're not the results that matter, have you really been truly effective? No. So if we're going to go from just simply being active and even being productive to being truly effective as the church in our mission and mandate, we need adequate power because there's a correlation between effectiveness and power. If you don't believe me, the next time you have to mow your lawn, just go out onto the front. Before you fire it up, turn it on or put in the petrol or plug it in. Just push your lawnmower around on your front lawn, right? And you'll very quickly realize, oh, okay, hold on. There's a correlation here, right, between power and effectiveness, power and effectiveness. So we cannot be the people of God and fulfill the mission God has given us without the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And God would have us live in expectation of and in dependency on that power. Now, of course, the power of the Holy Spirit is not some kind of cosmological, impersonal force floating around in the ether that kind of comes and goes. The power of God is inextricably linked to the person of God. And so the power of God is made a reality in our lives by the person of God in and through His Holy Spirit, who is present with you, in you, every moment of every day, right? I don't know about you, but I've been watching with fascination with curiosity what's going on over in Kentucky and in other parts of the church world in America. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not a revivalist. 
I'm not a revivalist for all sorts of reasons. I'm happy for those who are and who are enjoying the experiences that they're having. But I do not believe that you have to fly to Kentucky, stand in a queue for two and a half hours, and get into a particular venue in order to experience the presence and the power of God. You know why? Because He has taken up residence inside of you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when you lifted your head off the pillow this morning, you woke up to the reality of God's presence in your life. And you woke up to the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit at work through your life. And it doesn't matter where you go and who you are and what you do, that presence is with you. If you think about it this way, it's like the Bible. The Bible is an incredibly wonderful gift. Thank God for the Bible. But in a lot of ways, the Bible really just functions more like a, a compass than a map, right? So let me explain it this way. If I said to you, um, all right, I want you to travel from here to the bell tower down in the city. And, uh, and I gave you a map of Perth. And let's say you're new to Perth, so you've never been here before. You'd be able to get to the bell tower pretty easily because you've got a detailed, accurate description of the lay of the land. And you could navigate your way from here to the bell tower pretty simply by just following the map, okay? However, if I said to you, okay, I want you to get from here to the bell tower. I don't have a map, but I do have a compass. And all you need to do is travel 25 kilometers southeast, I guess would be the direction. Travel southeast for 25 kilometers, and this is what you're looking for. Here's the compass. You would be able to get there eventually, but you would have to improvise along the way. Because you don't have a detailed description of the lay of the land. So you don't know how many roads you have to cross. You don't know if you have to cross a river. There are all sorts of obstacles that you're going to have to navigate. And you're just going to have to make it up as you go. Because you don't have a detailed description of the lay of the land. Now in a lot of ways, the Bible offers us some description of human life and experience. But it's not an exhaustive description. How many of you know there are lots of things about life. The Bible has nothing to say. Okay? So it's not a map. It's not a detailed description of the lay of the land as far as human experience is concerned. But it is a compass. And so the Bible says if you move in the direction of integrity, you're moving in the direction of the will of God. doesn't matter what the situation or the circumstance. If you move in the direction of generosity, you are moving in the direction of the will of God. If you move in the direction of love for others, you are moving in the direction of the will of God. doesn't matter what the situation or the circumstance, right? So the Bible doesn't function quite like a map. It functions more like a compass. But there's something more powerful than a map and a compass. And you know what that is? A guide. Like if I dropped you in the outback, right, in the middle of WA, and I said, you've got three weeks to make your way back to Perth. You can have a map, a compass, or a guide. Like I'm talking like a bush ranger who's lived in the bush for 35 years and knows it like the back of his hand. Like someone who knows what berries you can eat and can't eat. What leaves you can use for toilet paper and what leaves you shouldn't use for toilet paper, right? I mean, a guide who knows the lay of the land. Would you take the map, the compass, or the guide? Guide, hands down, every time. Because that personal presence and that knowledge is, is irreplaceable. So I thank God for the gift of His Word. It's a wonderful treasure, right? But the Bible, as wonderful is, as it is as a gift from God, is not a substitute for God. Right? Having a Bible, but not having a personal, first-hand experiential relationship with God is like walking away from your wedding day with your photo album, but not your spouse. <laughs> like, what's the point, right? So thank God for the gift of the Bible, but God has not limited Himself to just simply giving us that gift. God has given us the gift of Himself. 
like the gift of his own personal presence inside of your life, present with you every day. That is mind-blowing. And so every, every single follower of Jesus gets to live with that reality at work in their lives. Real power. Real power. You know, just this week, literally just a couple of days ago, I've got a student in, uh, in one of my units in the, in the course that I'm teaching at college. And uh, she emailed me to say, I'm not going to make my deadline for this assessment. I've just had some really disturbing news. I was at the doctor. I was feeling unwell. They've done some tests, and they found three lesions, three small lesions on, on my abdomen area. I said, look, you do what you need to do, and um, we're going to pray, and we're going to believe with you. We're going to trust God for a good outcome. Anyway, so she went for a series of tests, and these things showed up, and they said um, she needs to go in for a biopsy. So she went in for a biopsy, and I just messaged her to say, uh, just thinking of you, uh, praying for you, believing with you for God to show himself strong on your behalf. She emailed me a couple of days ago. She said, well, she said, we're not quite sure what's going on, but it looks like there's a miracle unfolding, right? Th these are her words. She said, I went in for the, for the test. They were going to do the biopsy as, as part of the endoscopic assessment that they were doing. And she said, the problem is they couldn't find anything to biopsy. Like the three lesions are literally gone. They're all gone, right? So she said, her oncologist said, well, this wasn't kind of the meeting we were expecting. This, this is a little unsettling. They said, we can't figure out what's happened. So we're going to run a series of other tests because we want to be absolutely certain, right? So she said, I'm, I'm cautiously kind of announcing a miracle because I've got to go for these tests to be absolutely sure. But she said, all three lesions are gone. They're literally gone. No treatment, no intervention, no surgery, no nothing. They've just disappeared, right? Wow, okay. Wow, wow. Surprising, sovereign, supernatural intervention of God. Now, I know, I know, friends, I know that God doesn't do that for everyone, everywhere, all the time. I know that these things are, t are tied to the will of God, and the will of God is sometimes shrouded in mystery. I know that it's not under our control. We can't push buttons and pull levers to get God to do what we want Him to do. He does what He does, sovereignly, supernaturally, according to His wisdom, His divine economy. But He does them. He intervenes in the ordinary course of human nature. And he does sovereign, supernatural, powerful things. And so we see real power. And then finally, and I'll close with this final thought, we see real change. We see real people, real power, and real change. Right? What I love about the book of Acts is that you see people who are far from God being drawn into covenant with God and experiencing relationship with Him. You see people who are broken and damaged and diseased in their bodies, receiving healing and wholeness and wellness. You see people who are lonely and isolated and socially marginalized being brought into community, finding family, finding friendship in the people of God. You see people whose hearts are gripped with hatred and bigotry and racism and prejudice being brought into a community of inclusivity and, and, and multicultural and multigenerational um, love and relationship. You see lives being transformed, people being changed. People's lives being turned right side up and inside out. We see God bringing deep, profound transformation. And I want to finish with this encouragement from the book of Acts, from Acts chapter 2. And we'll read it together. It'll be up on screen so you can follow along. As we think about these three realities that God has been working in and through the life of His church for the last two millennia. And listen to what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 46. It says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and a sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. 
A deep sense of awe came over all of them, and the apostles performed many miracles and signs and wonders. All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. And all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a wonderful description of the kind of faith family we all want to be a part of. The kind of faith family we all desire that every day church continues to be and becomes in ever-increasing measure. A place where people find connection, they find acceptance, they find relationship, they experience the power of God, and they experience deep transformation in every part of who they are. But here's the key. Do you notice that opening line? All the believers, not some of the believers, not most of the believers, not the most mature believers or the oldest believers, all the believers, all the believers, all the believers devoted themselves devoted themselves, right? And here's the point, friends. I can't devote you, and you can't devote me. You have to devote you. <laughs> and all of us are devoted to something. And all of us are devoted to someone. The question is, are you as devoted to the Lord and His church as you are to your spouse or to the West Coast Eagles? or to the Fremantle Dockers, or to Manchester United, or wherever it is that you're devoted to, right? Who are you devoted to? And are you as devoted to the Lord and His people as you are to anything else in life? Because here's the key. What unlocks this type of supernatural change, manifestation of God's power and grace and goodness, is when all the believers devote themselves fully and wholly to the mission of God in this world, to the plan and the purpose of God, the, 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 the assignment that God has placed upon your life individually and your church collectively. When all the believers devote themselves, we see God showing up and doing some wonderful things. And I guess the exhortation that I just sense the Holy Spirit is, is bringing to you through me today is an invitation to devotion. An invitation to devotion. Will you devote yourself in a fresh new way to what it is that God has called you to do and be here? I don't for a moment assume that it's coincidental or accidental that you are part of this faith community, that you are here today. I believe you're here by divine design, by divine orchestration, that God has gathered you together. He's brought you together. He's knit you together. Because He has something that He wants to do in you and through you, individually and collectively. But here's what it's going to require. A fresh commitment to being fully devoted. Fully devoted to Jesus and fully devoted to His people. Amen. All right, let's stand up on our feet. We're going to pray together. And uh, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes and just open up your hearts to God this morning. And then the band are going to lead us in a song. And we're going to finish today with... Worship, just honoring God for the good things that He has done and for the good things He is going to do. So if you're comfortable doing so, just open up your hands to heaven and open up your heart to God as we unite our hearts in faith before His throne of grace. Father, we come before You today so thankful for the gift of this time and this place. 
thank you, Father, for this um, expression of heaven on earth, this planting of your kingdom here called Everyday Church. We thank you, God, for um, every design and intention that you have for it. I want to thank you, Father, that you see the end from the beginning, so you know the road ahead. And I know, God, that the future of this faith community is full of life, full of hope, full of blessing, full of promise. Father, I thank you for the coming season of growth and expansion, and I pray, Father, that you would increase, Lord, the capacity of those who lead it and steward it to receive that, Father. I pray that you give them wisdom, give them courage, and I pray, Father, that as they step out in faith to do all that you are asking them to do, that they will feel carried by you, that they will feel empowered by you, and we pray, Father, that you would indeed show yourself strong on their behalf. And Father, I pray for every single person who calls this place home, for every person who has been planted here. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would draw them, Father, into a place of fresh, new devotion and commitment to what it is you have called them to do and be in this place. Father, I pray that they would feel a new sense of urgency about the mandate that you have placed upon their lives. I pray, Father, that there would be a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit and invigoration, God, and empowerment and impartation, God, that would allow them to serve in the power and grace of your Holy Spirit. And God, we do pray that you would continue to change lives. God, we pray for healed bodies. We pray for saved souls. We pray for restored marriages. We pray for restoration in friendships. We pray, God, that you would move powerfully and sovereignly through our lives, that you would show yourself strong. And God, we would give you all the glory and all the honor and all the power and all the praise for all that you do in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said, amen, amen, amen. amen. All right, let's lift our voices and let's give him the glory this morning. Amen.